Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from McLean, Virginia, and in particular, the Ritz, the Ritz-Carlton in Tyson's Corner. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837, that's 888-88-PETER, and if you can't get through on the phones, you know exactly what to do. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way, my handle is at Peter S. Greenberg, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. Lots of stuff to talk about. And I'm going to start with my own great experiences in the last couple of days with our good friends at the TSA. As many of you might know from listening to the show, I got involved in a rather heated argument with uh, Jay Johnson, the the uh, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, a couple of, uh, well, a couple of months ago back on, on CBS, uh, when my argument was, why have TSA pre-check if you never open the lines? Why is it that I had to wait an hour and 34 minutes to get on my international flight and they had to hold all the flights at LAX because everybody was waiting an hour and 34 minutes? Uh, This was back in May and June at the beginning of the summer. We were told that they were fixing it. 
And to their credit, uh, in, at some major choke point air- airports in the United States, they did, but not necessarily all of them. Uh, let me give you an example. Earlier this week, Terminal 2 at Delta at JFK. Um, Sunday afternoon, busy travel time. Uh, TSA pre-check line closed. And when I asked the TSA officer why, he said, we don't have enough people. So I said, so you haven't fixed the problem. He says, oh, no, no, we don't have a problem. You're, you, you just stay in this line. I said, no, no, no. The reason why I have TSA pre-check is to not be in this line. He goes, well, you're going to be in this line. I said, tell me something I don't know. I said, last time I looked, we paid your salary. Why haven't you fixed the staffing problems? He said, you stay in this line and don't cause any trouble. I said, wow, welcome to TSA, otherwise known as thousands standing around. Okay, cut to earlier this, later this week, Miami International, flying actually up to, up to Washington National. Uh, no TSA pre-check again. They closed the line. Uh, guys, you either have it or you don't have it. At one point this summer, we had something like 15,000 people a day applying for TSA pre-check, willing to p- spend the money because they didn't want to stand in the other long line. Why are they spending the money if it's the same line? You're either a trusted traveler or you're not. And the one that drives me totally nuts, and anybody listening to the show who comes back to the United States, who does the one government program that does work, Global Entry, that really works, but you still have, but if you're connecting on a flight, so you're clearing customs in the United States, going through that kiosk with Global Entry, which works like a charm, they get nothing but a shout out from me, it's great, but then you have to recheck in through security to go to your connecting flight. Okay, but there's no pre-check there either. Why? You are either a trusted traveler or you're not. What is the problem? Can somebody from DHS or the TSA give me a logical, logical, common sense answer to that question? I'm open to it. If you got a reason, I'd like to hear it. You know, I'm the kind of guy that if you tell me the speed limit's 60 miles an hour, I'm going to still ask you, could you tell me why? And if you answer saying, we've done the research, Peter, and at 61 miles an hour, you're going to die a fiery death, my answer is, wow, thank you for telling me. I'll drive 55. But if you tell me the speed limit's 60 miles an hour and I ask you why, and your answer is, because, or it's our policy, here's a little news bulletin. I'm driving 80 because you haven't made your case. So I encourage anybody from the TSA or the DHS to please make your case about why you still don't have all the pre-check lines open. And why you don't have pre-check at all when you're connecting after an international flight and you've already cleared your customs and border patrol in the United States. I do not get it. By the way, once you get global entry, you're automatically given pre-check, so you're either a trusted traveler or you're not. That's my argument. By the way, I can't think of another one against it. So our phone lines are open. And by the way, if somebody calls from the TSA, that must mean that they're not wa- watching the pre-check line. They took time off to call me, but I'll give, you, I'll give you a one-time pass to call me and give me a reasonable argument why what my complaint is doesn't have merit. Okay? 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. Now, speaking of merit, I finally had the chance. With my travel schedule, I'm amazed I see anything these days, but this is the one movie I wanted to go see. I finally went to see the movie Sully, and I encourage you all to see it, even though you know the end of the story. We all witnessed it, right? The miracle on the Hudson. Uh, I have 
huge issues to pick and to raise with most movies that are done about airlines or aviation because the people who are making them do not really do their homework in many cases. They don't have a good attention to detail. They think one plane looks like all planes. And anybody who does any kind of traveling, you don't have to be a licensed pilot to see the problems. When you see them substitute an old 727 when it should have been a DC-9, it makes you question the rest of the credibility of the movie. I will tell you, however, that I am pleased to report, and by the way, surprised to report, that with maybe one exception, they got it right in Sully. They had all the information to work with. They didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to speculate about anything. They could be true to form. Uh, but, I mean, they got all the details right. They even got the gate right that he, that, he, that he left from LaGuardia on. They got all the CGI was perfect. It really was. Um, they used the boats. They, I mean, all the terminology in the cockpit was correct. Why? They had the voice recorder information. They knew exactly what they said. The script was already written. But they got it right. The only thing that might be arguable is the somewhat adversarial nature of the relationship between the NTSB investigators and, and Captain Sully and Jeff Scalise as co-pilot. But there was a little dramatic license taken there, I can tell you that. But you know what? I forgive them for that because on balance, they got it right. And uh, I saw the Denzel Washington movie Flight. They got everything wrong. I mean, I don't care about the acting. I care about the details. When you're trying to tell a story that wants to be compelling and, and move you in some way. Um, and by the way, the Denzel Washington movie was based lightly on an actual event that happened with an Alaska Airlines plane that crashed off the coast of California, killing all aboard. And it was about maintenance, well, I would call them violations, with a jack screw in the tail. But that's another story. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Joining me now, uh, an old pal of mine. I last saw him in D.C. Uh, he has been named as Time's 100 most influential people. Wow, that alone is a big deal. It, don't give me that face. It's a big deal. <laughs> and now he's laughing. Oh. <laughs> hola. Oh, oh, I got an hola out of him. Okay. Chef Jose Andres, how are you, sir? So happy to be here with you. And, and it's, it's amazing when you think about your influence and the culinary scene. Because today we live in a world where everybody seems to think they're a celebrity chef. But... You've been doing this for how long now? <laughs> well, cooking uh, over 30 years. Wow. Uh, amazing. Wow. Yeah, over 30 years, 31, 32 years. Wow. I'm 47 now, and I began very much cooking like when I was 15, 14, 15. So. No, you, no, you began in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, in the kitchen, yeah. yeah. But cooking, cooking, probably we are very lucky chefs because a guy like me, I've seen my dad and my mom cooking probably since I was two or three. And how many of their recipes do you still have? Uh, I would say few. Uh, uh, my mom passed away like two weeks ago. Oh, and I'm the sorry. way to celebrate her was very much going around 400 kilometers north of Spain from on the Ribi in the very east point of Basque Country, Spain, all the way to Asturias, where I was born. 
And during those four or five hundred kilometers, we were having uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh, drinking cider, Rioja wine, and, and, and eating some of uh, her best dishes. But again, my mom, my dad, uh, I have a dish, red peppers, roasted, and then cooked with garlic and sherry vinegar. The best red peppers in the history of mankind. And that comes from mom. And that comes from mom. Wow. And you, know, you mentioned Rioja. I spent some time in that region in Spain last year. I mean, Rioja is, is an underappreciated wine. Well, probably has a lot of still room for growth. But uh, Rioja, Rioja has been always the iconic wine of Spain. But the truth is that has some wines, some wineries that they are making wine as good as any of the best wines in the world, period. And the best is still to come. I was recently with uh, Alvaro Palacios, the wonder boy of of Spain. Uh, he's a good friend. And everybody talks about Rioja and Tempranillo being the main grape of Rioja. He has one wine coming uh, made with Garnacha, with Grenache, that the world is not ready <laughs> to understand. And when that wine hits the market, it's very little production. People of the world, be ready because your life will change forever if you are able to to grab a bottle. I don't even know the name, but I taste it, and I know I became a different man because wow. he's Grenache from Rioja. I, you know, I like the way you said that. I'm gonna I'm gonna do your I'm gonna do my impression of you saying that. <laughs> Grenache from Rioja. Are you implying I have an accent? No, you already have an accent. I don't have an accent. Everybody else around me have a funny accent. I don't. Hey, speaking of accents, here you are at Ritz-Carlton in Tyson's Corner with a restaurant called American Eats. Yeah. You know, this is like 10 minutes away from my house. I live in Bethesda on the other side of the river. Um, and, and American Eats uh, here at the Ritz-Carlton in Tyson's is very special to me because I've been 25 years in the States already almost and three American-born daughters. And I love history. I left school early, and I always trying to catch up of everything I couldn't learn uh, in high school or university and try to, to believe I know about the world. And so I love to always be reading and learning. And for me, one of my hobbies was obviously always learning about food worldwide, but I was super interested in trying to understand what, what was the beginning of, of American cooking. Um, and I've been doing this, you know, as a hobby forever. And one day I thought, let me finally open my American concept, which is kind of an homage to the America uh, I love so much. Now, the word America or the, the words American Eats might lead some to think that the only thing you have on the menu is a cheeseburger. <laughs> well, there's it, nothing wrong with an amazing, good cheeseburger. Uh, I love them. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas We've been speaking with Jose Andres, the proprietor of America Eats right here at the Ritz-Carlton. And how many other restaurants? 
Uh, many, a few. <laughs> uh, I cannot believe I began with one. And, and you know, I, I am not a chef. Uh, I'm a storyteller. And uh, the way I have to tell my stories is through restaurants. So, so let's talk about America Eats. So it's not just the cheeseburger. It's yep. more than the cheeseburger. It's so much more than the cheeseburger for obvious reasons. Um, overseas, everybody thinks still today that America is precisely a, a bad hot dog on Fifth Avenue somewhere. And and this, quite frankly, I'm, I'm a proud Spaniard, but I'm also a proud American now. And I, this always bothered me, especially when I went back home and in Europe, which we can be very chauvinistic and a little bit pretentious when we talk about cooking. Precisely, everybody was like, oh, sure, you made it in America. They don't know how to cook. So anybody with some level of knowledge will make it. I'm like, really? So we all know that in America today, it's, uh, we have in every city so many chefs. Chefs that came from far and chefs that are true American-born. And the level is unbelievable from the food trucks all the way to the four-star restaurants. So for me, it was like, let me show you dishes that are amazing, not only for the foreigners, but also for America. Why we forgot the shrimp cocktail with grapefruit of Irma Rombauer, day of cooking. Why that cocktail of grapefruit and shrimp somehow has disappeared? Or, 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 or so many other things that I believe uh, jambalaya, one of the most iconic rice dishes anywhere in the world. A good one can be competing with the best paella from Valencia. So why I cannot have a restaurant that really brings all those super amazing, regional, iconic, sometimes historical dishes? And that's what I did. Okay, so on that menu at America Eats, what would you say is your most surprising dish on that menu? That people are going, wait a minute, what is this? Well, we have so many things, but one of my favorites probably, it's uh, uh, oysters were always super iconic in America. We had plenty of them. Uh, around Manhattan, New York, was plenty of them, 1600s. We have these uh, oyster ketchup that in the old days was called oyster ketchup. Uh, today, the only ketchup we know is use the tomato. Yeah. Not necessarily like we can say super good and super gourmet. But what if uh, we know that some of the first ketchups, as they were called, had nothing to do with tomatoes because tomatoes were barely available here in the States at the time, but they were ketchups made out of walnuts. No, the walnuts came from Europe, but a type of walnut that was already available here, or oysters, or blueberries. Things like this, I think, is the, the, the most uh, iconic things that we have in the menu. Not only the dish itself, but certain things that somehow they disappear from uh, America landscape, but they're part of what America was not too long ago. But now you have to educate your customers as to, hey guys, we're not showing you something new. We're giving you something that's old that you haven't that you haven't discovered yet. Correct. And we began bringing dishes like you know Mark Twain had this kind of amazing lamb with oysters, that is like a lamb neck uh, stew with oysters, which is becoming one of the most popular dishes. On now, the if somebody said to me, "We got a great lamb and oyster dish tonight," I'd say, "Get out of here! I'm not going to order that." Or only learning how um, actually. Uh, Macaroni and cheese. Um, well, now we're talking. The, uh, <laughs> back in the old days, it used to be called vermicelli cook like pudding. and was not made by an Italian, but was made by a guy called Fresnay in Philadelphia, who happens was French, and who happens <laughs> got one of the first vermicelli machines in America. 
It changes that we know that when we eat macaroni and no, cheese. No, we don't know that, yeah. It, it doesn't, but it's not so much better if we eat knowing a little bit about those things. I do believe it matters. Now, you're also going to be part of the cookout in the Cayman Islands? Well, I am part of it. I will say I'm the organizer. Uh, I bring my buddies. I mean, I, I don't do cookouts. I do use gatherings of friends, and we invite people. <laughs> <clears throat> and, that's that, in, and that's in January coming up. And this is coming January in another great Ritz-Carlton property, one of the great hotels of the Caribbean, at Dorado, Dorado Beach, super iconic place in the in the Caribbean. And there we gather two, three days, and the only thing we do is you eat, cook, and you eat, eat, drink, cook, eat. Drink. We try to teach people how to cook this or that. Uh, Eric Rippert, Anthony Bourdain, Team Love. Some of the most uh, talented chefs in the Caribbean uh, from Puerto Rico. Uh, we all gather and we have fun and people seem to have fun with us. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. If you're like me, you're always eating on the road because you're always on the road. And uh, my eating habits are absolutely terrible. They've gotten better in the last couple of years because I've, I've sworn off in the last eight years I haven't had meat. Very little bread. I'm, I'm a fish and veggie guy. I'm a pescatarian. But my next guest, uh, an old buddy of mine, one of the all-time great uh, travel writers and knows everything about travel, but he also knows everything about food uh, and has been researching the topics of something called Real and fake food. That's right. Real food, fake food. And you know what? We need to know more about this. Larry Olmstead, how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Nice catching up. Yeah. And, you know, that journey that you did for that, for that project, I mean, you literally went all over the world. I did. I spent about four years uh, researching my new book and uh, took me, you know, from Japan to Alaska to South America, all over Europe, all over the U.S. It was a, a, a pretty good run. <laughs> So let's get down to definitions of terms, real food and fake food. Sure. I broadly define fake food as when you get something other than what you think you're paying for, either at retail or restaurants. And, you know, broadly that, that can be, you know, uh, two things. It can be illegal, which is where, you know, food is intentionally mislabeled to deceive you, which, you know, unfortunately happens a lot with seafood. You mentioned you mentioned eating a lot of fish. You order red snapper and you get, you know, something much cheaper. Um, or it can be legal but misleading, like uh, champagne made in the United States that consumers think is the real thing from France. Well, you know, it's interesting because there is a huge story, and I know you're all over it, about all the sushi in New York um, that is not properly labeled and not properly, uh, you know, not properly explained at restaurants. Uh, absolutely, and it, it's not. I mean, the, the the study was done in New York, and every single um, place they tested failed. The restaurants had a hundred percent failure rate in terms of having at least one um, item on their menu that was not the species it claimed to be. But okay, so let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What's the biggest offending fake species at a sushi restaurant? Um, tuna and red snapper. Tuna? Yeah. Um, there's two problems. I mean, one is that a lot of sushi restaurants, for some reason, and this is sort of unique to sushi, will put on the menu white tuna, 
And there is no such thing as white tuna. It's not a kind of tuna. It's not a legal classification. It's just something that they sort of made up for the sushi industry. Um, and uh, often when it's tested, the, what they claim is white tuna is actually escalar, which is um, a fish that's ironically banned in Japan because uh, it's known to cause digestive distress in people. Its nickname in the industry is the Xlax of the sea. Oh, and, great. Uh, you know, people sometimes eat sushi and they feel not so well the next day and they say, oh, I must have had bad tuna. But the reality is they're probably sick because they didn't have tuna at all. All right. So tuna is the big offender in terms of being mislabeled. But you go way beyond fish in this in this project. Absolutely. Um, uh, olive oil, cheese. Uh, I mean, okay, it, yeah, it let's let's st- talk about let's talk about olive oil for a second. Sure. I had an idea and you're going to laugh when you hear this idea, but I'm going to throw it to you anyway. My original idea was. Everybody wants to have extra virgin olive oil. I have no idea what that means, okay? And and I wanted to come up with a whole new brand of olive oil. You ready? Bad girl olive oil. Slutty olive <laughs> oil. Um, you know, I mean, naughty girl olive oil. You know, and, 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 you know I, I think people would actually buy it. Uh, they probably would, but I would still I would still try to make your naughty girl extra virgin because there is plenty of unfortunately non-virgin olive oil floating around. Okay, explain the difference, please. So, uh... Unlike all the other oils that we eat, which are seed oil, sunflower, canola, um, corn, um, olives are fruit. So olive oil is rare in that it's a fruit oil, and you make it just like you make fresh-squeezed orange juice. You take an olive and you crush it. Or today, more commonly, they might spin it in the centrifuge and re- remove the oil um, through, through gravitational force. But either way, it's mechanically extracted. You take an olive, you crush it, you get olive oil. It's that simple. So virgin olive oil can be nothing but that juice gotten from mechanically um, crushing an olive. Uh, once, if, if, it, if it's not good enough, once they do that, it doesn't pass chemical and sensory tests, then they often distill it, thermically treat it, chemically treat it, at which point it is no longer considered virgin. And, extra, and in, there's virgin and extra virgin uh, in the virgin grades, extra virgin being the best. I, I compare it to when you go to buy gas, extra virgin is ultra premium. Okay. And then there's my new brand, Bad Girl. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's worked for, you know, you and I can make a lot of money with this, Larry. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So olive oil is another offender. Give me one more. Um, Well, I started the project um, because of a story I did for Forbes years ago about Kobe beef. Um, Almost all you've heard. I I know you've heard of Kobe beef. You've probably had it in Japan. Um, But if you think you've had it in the U.S., which a lot of people do, they're probably wrong because almost all of the Kobe beef sold in the United States, like 99-plus percent, is is not from Japan. Yeah, it's Kobe Bryant beef. Exactly. Well, he's actually named after the beef. His dad was so impressed when he went to Japan in the service and tasted it. That's why he named him that. Oh, my God. All right, but then there's Wagyu beef, too. Is that also an offender? Yeah, that's sort of a murkier issue because, you know, Wagyu means he refers to Japanese breeds. And most people, when they're served, so told uh, they're being served Wagyu in restaurants and it's $300 a steak, assume it's from Japan. Some of it is, most of it is not. And then to, you know, make it further confusing, there's some really responsible farmers here in the U.S. who raise pure, great Wagyu, just like farmers raise other, you know, heritage breed animals and things. But by, but uh, what restaurants pass off as Wagyu often has little or no actual Wagyu bloodline in it. Wow. Well, listen, when we come back, what I want to do is talk to you about, given this dire situation of uh, fake food out there, let's go destination by destination, ranging from right here in, in Virginia or Maryland to Alaska to you know, the South Pacific as to where you would go 
so you could actually know you're getting real food and where you and 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 the, and the stuff you know it's real. Fair enough. One of my favorite topics. I, I thought so. And just for that, I'm going to give you some Kobe beef. <laughs> <laughs> and so and some of my special white tuna. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. You know, you, you listen to the words Ritz-Carlton and you have an image. And then there's something called the Ritz-Carlton Reserve. And I discovered one a couple of years ago that so blew me away that I, I would like to escape and move there permanently uh, it's the Ritz-Carlton in Pule Bay in, in Thailand. Unbelievable. You know, there's the old Groucho Marx line that you would never join a club that would have you as a member. Well, that's the way I felt the first 24 hours I was there. And then I kind of, of course, I kind of got into it. Um, well, there are a number of those reserves around the world. And one of the newest ones is, believe it or not, in Puerto Rico. And it's the Dorado Beach in Puerto Rico. And joining me now, the chef there, Christian Clare. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? I am good. And, you know, I'm always interested in local cuisine wherever I go. And the cuisine in Puerto Rico in the old days was rice and plantains and more rice and plantains. You've changed it around a little bit, haven't you? So, yeah, that is true. And, uh, even when I came like uh, four years ago, it was a lot of uh, mofongo and the rice and the bean. But I think uh, all that started to change a couple years ago, and I will say it's mainly because of a culinary movement. I will say it's because of a celebrity chef, like uh, Rose Andres, who have a partner into the uh, hotel. And the uh, all uh, local chefs been pushing and working with the farmers. So now we have a lot of uh, diversity on food, and I think the Puerto Rican food has been very uh, modernized. And today we have a lot of uh, interesting uh, dishes. Well, Christian, you know, it's interesting you talk about local farmers. 20 years ago, sourcing things in Puerto Rico wasn't that easy. Um, and that's changed, right? You've actually been able to work with, with the local uh, producers to get what you need. Yes, and uh, that is true because, uh, like, uh, this Sunday, I went to the uh, middle of the mountain, so, which is uh, one hour from uh, Dorado. And uh, I meet with uh, some farmers. Uh, they're growing uh, strawberries, and they're growing tomatoes, and they're doing lettuce and different herbs which is a very good product on the benefit with the climate of Puerto Rico. You can get them uh, all year long, and they always taste the same. So it's been a lot of development. And uh, in the property, too, we are doing a green. So we're working with uh, uh, somebody, actually, that's from California, and they moved to Puerto Rico. And they have a container where they do uh, organic salad, and we start to work with them like a month ago. And they have an amazing product. And the benefit, they can grow what we need. So it's not just bugging. Uh, what is available. So a lot of uh, good benefit in it. Now, we were just on the phone with with Larry Olmstead, who did a book called Real Food, Fake Food, and one of the things he was talking about was how much of sushi in, in restaurants in the United States is either mislabeled or misrepresented. You also have a sushi restaurant there. Yes, so we have a sushi restaurant on the ceviche, which is South American, and we uh, use uh, fish for 
from uh, locals. So we have uh, Dorado, we have uh, uh, some uh, Mai, uh, and we have some uh, fish. We need to bring it a little bit more uh, further because like uh, tuna is not very available in Puerto Rico. But it's a thing we try to work with the fishermen too. So like in uh, Rose Andres restaurant, for example, we have a spiny lobster, which is a Caribbean lobster, and we get them uh, right from the coast from a fisherman. So a lot of... Uh, a development into a, a fisher in a man in Puerto Rico too. Now, I always ask the chefs this question, so I have to ask it to you as well. And it's not to tell me your favorite dish. We'll get to that in a second. My question is this. What was the menu item you put on your menu when you first started that you thought, boy, everybody is going to love this dish and it tanked? And then what's the one dish that you reluctantly put on the menu saying, who's going to ever want this? And everybody wanted it. So that is a very interesting question because uh, before uh, I came to Puerto Rico, my background is uh, definitely as my accent is French, but I live a lot of time in the state and I live a little bit everywhere from Florida, California, uh, Midwest. And uh, when I came here, like we say, I was surprised by the product and uh, the product I put in the in the menu was a shishito paper, which nobody knows what it was in Puerto Rico. What, what and, is that uh, again? What was that? Shishito paper. Tell so me it's more. A small paper, they grow it in California actually. And uh, when I uh, came here, nobody would know what it was. And I, and I love that product when I discovered it. And I was my challenge to make sure people will love it. And when I came here, nobody ordered it because nobody <laughs> knows about it. So I just start to give a sample to every table, and people love it. And it become uh, one of the main dish. People love it. And uh, you see, after a lot of restaurants start to uh, put it on their menu too. So I think it's become a, a part of the culture. Uh, culture from Puerto Rico to get those paper and those spices. So you know what? The, the, the bottom line is if you leave it on the menu long enough, someone's finally going to eat it. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.